Good morning, church. My name is Hunter Long, and I serve here as the student pastor, and it's my privilege to be standing before you this morning, opening and studying the Word of God together. The text we'll be looking at this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, through chapter 2, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, 13, through chapter 2, verse 3. It's my goal that by the end of our time together this morning, that we would see that as those who have been brought into a living hope by Christ's saving work on the cross, we are to pursue holiness. It is also my goal, as it is with every Sunday from this pulpit, that Christ's name would be made great because after all, this is the Lord's day. It is for him in which we gather together to study his word. All right, by now you have surely arrived at our text of study. So would you please stand, if you are able, and honor the reading of God's word as it still speaks to us today. The Apostle Peter writes, as he is carried along by the Spirit of God, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Church family, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. During my high school years and early college, I worked at the Lord's Chicken Temple, also known as Chick-fil-A. Yeah. Amen. Amen. You may go home. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> After working there for a period of time, I came to learn all the positions in the store. Uh, I got to raise, rise up pretty far in the company, at least in that local store. 
and I felt like a good employee. I had a great relationship with the managers, uh, yet there was one man who I could not seem to establish a good relationship with, and that was the owner of the store. Now, this particular man, he was a strong, intimidating man. And so whenever he would visit the store, we always tried to be on lockdown, be on our best behavior, because we knew the owner of the store was coming in. I know none of you all know what I'm talking about here. You don't act on your best behavior when the boss walks in. But here we were, you know, he's coming into the store. We need to be on our best behavior. And uh, it was intimidating, As I said, I could not seem to get on this man's good side. And so one day when he came into the store, I decided to impress him by doing some special cleaning he often required of us when he came in. But rather than doing it as I was asked and checking it off the box, because I knew he was coming, it was my responsibility to do, I decided to wait until he walked by so that he would see me performing this task because I wanted to be on his good side. I wanted to impress him, right? It was upon completing the task that some conviction came over me, and the words of 1 Peter actually came to mind, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In that moment, I realized that my intentions and motivations for doing this task were not because I was submitting to authority and my boss had asked me to do it. No, I was doing it because, really, it was for self-glory. And to top it off, I didn't get the credit I desired, but rather a, you missed a spot as he walked by. In 1 Peter, the apostle is calling believers not to return to the passions of their former ignorance. Don't do these silly things, but rather out of motivation for the salvific work of Jesus Christ, pursue holiness for his glory. After all, as Paul reminds the church in Ephesus, there is no boasting to be done on our behalf, right? Because we were dead. But because of the gift of grace that comes from God in and through the person of Jesus Christ, we can have life. So before we get into the points I want us to see from our passage of study, I think it's important to set some some context Because after all, we're just jumping right into the book of 1 Peter. If you've been with us for the past several, I don't know how many Sundays it's been, but we've been in the book of Deuteronomy, praise be to God. Um, And so here we are jumping into a book that we haven't been looking looking at, and so I want us to set some context. Verse 13 of 1 Peter begins with the word, therefore. And as I tell my students on Wednesday nights, when we see the word, therefore, we need to figure out what it is therefore. Same thing if we see an if so or so then. We need to see what was being built upon before that led the author to what they are writing now. So looking back at verse, at the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, which is actually one long sentence in the Greek text, there is no command, no imperatives, admonitions, exhortations, And so what do we find in these first 12 verses? Well, we find glorious affirmations and declarations of the saving grace of God in Christ. Look with me at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading and kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. I don't know about you, 
But when I am passionate about something, I could talk about it forever. I imagine for several of us, we could, in one long sentence without taking a breath, express our love for cinema, our favorite sports teams, hobbies, careers, if you love your career, and so on. For Peter, however, his passion has nothing to do with external things. His passion has to do with the internal. His passion has to do with the inward transforming power of the gospel. The power that although we were dead, Christ has caused us to be born again, not to a dying hope, church, but to a living hope. Not to an inheritance that is kept by our power, praise God, but an inheritance that is kept by his power. This, dear friends, is great reason for rejoicing. And so maybe as an aside, may we share in Peter's passion for the gospel. When someone asks you for the reason, for the hope that is within you, could you go on and on about it? Because you were once blind, and now you see. Because you were once lost, and now you were found by the free gift of salvation in Christ. I pray that be the case for all of us. In summary, these first 12 verses, we could say that Paul or Peter is focusing exclusively on what God has done. And now in verses 13 through 16, Peter turns his attention to the moral and ethical responsibilities we must embrace as those who have received an inheritance, or to put another way, as those who have been adopted as children of God go and do this. It's important that we do not skip over the therefores because this word tells us that all of Peter's forthcoming exhortations depend on the grace he has been expounding on in verses 1 through 12. The call to obedience in which Peter is calling us is rooted, is built on, is upon the foundation of the realities of grace. And this is important for us to see this morning. This frames the entire passage that we will be looking at. It's important to see that the imperative is always based on the indicative. The imperative of obedience comes from and is based on the indicative of God's grace. You see, if we reverse the order, then we have made faith about legalism and works righteousness. I do not obey to earn, but rather I have been saved to obey. I do not obey to earn. I have been saved by the redeeming work of Jesus Christ to then obey. This is important as we look at the rest of Peter's exhortations. So after that long introduction, let us now dive into the text. There are four sections or parts that I would like to divide this passage up into for us. First, The conduct of those who are saved. The conduct of those who are saved. Look with me at verses 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I 
am holy. It's important that before we begin talking about the pursuit of holiness, we define what holiness is as it relates to our endeavor. And we'll, of course, talk more about this word throughout the course of our time together. But let's begin with this. Jerry Bridges, the author of The Pursuit of Holiness, which is an excellent book, defines holiness this way. Holiness, he says, as it relates to our pursuit, is nothing less than the conformity to the character of God. Holiness is nothing less than the conformity to the character of God. And as we've already laid out, we pursue holiness, we pursue holiness to conform to the character of God, not as a means of earning salvation, but rather out of the saving work of Jesus Christ, we respond in obedience, empowered by the Spirit, to live for the one who has redeemed us. So with that definition, and in light of this grace, the indicative, the believer's conduct is to be one of holiness. However, it is not as if we are saved and the next day we arise in perfection, right? This is not the case. But rather, there is now tension. And Scripture notices this. The authors of Scripture notice this, right? Whereas before... We were enslaved to the sin which captivated us, which had us in bondage, and we only did the things of our sinful nature. But now, because we have been born again, a renewal of the mind has taken place, and we are at war with the flesh. Paul explains this battle well in Romans 7.22. He says, For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Later, Paul will say in Romans 8, 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The tension is clear, and it would seem that the strategic battleground where flesh and spirit fight is the mind. And so it makes sense that Peter, no doubt experiencing this tension that we are experiencing as born-again believers in Christ, that he calls believers to prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Some translations say that we need to gird up our loins, which carries the idea of rolling up your sleeves. Why? Because living for the Spirit is a battle. Pursuing holiness is a battle. It requires us to be sober, to be focused, to remove loose and sloppy thinking as if you were drunk. Be focused. Because if our minds aren't focused, we can be so easily led astray. And so what are we to focus on? The author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 12:1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. It's a battle. Run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Similarly, Peter tells us, tells the saints, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is the first 
moral imperative we find in the text. The charge that in our pursuit of holiness, we are to devote every ounce of mental, spiritual, and emotional energy to contemplating and concentrating on the grace that is to come. One author defines grace this way. Grace is the unmerited love of God, stooping to save and bless the source of all those bright and holy gifts which come from his infinite heart. I am thankful that the grace of God is not only for my past, to redeem me from my sin, to bring me out of a hostile state into a friendship with God. I'm thankful that grace is not only for the present, in which each moment I'm standing in the grace having been justified by his son. So when the father looks at me, although I have works that are just filthy rags, he looks to Christ, his son, who lived in perfect righteousness to the law. But also the grace of God is future, in which his grace will be brought to us in Christ's second coming, wherein He will make all things new. God has only begun to show us the riches of his grace. The second exhortation Peter offers is that as obedient children, we are not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. As we just read in Hebrews, in order to run our race well and focus our gaze on the author and perfecter of our faith in Jesus, we have to throw off every sin, every weight that so easily entangles us. Peter reminds us that the old ways were ignorant. But ignorant of what? One commentator says this about these words. The ignorance Peter speaks of is an ignorance to God's beauty and his gracious intent in Christ. To not acknowledge Christ is what gives rise to the lusts and sinful desires and habits that keep us in bondage. My biggest obstacle, your biggest obstacle to the pursuit of holiness is becoming ignorant or stagnant to the things of God. It is when I forget the Lord's kindness. It is when I forget his goodness to bring me from death to life that I run off to find life in myself, life in my sin. It is like a disobedient child who rather than listening to the wise words of their parents run off to his own way. Church family, may this not be the case with us But rather we as obedient children listen to the words of our Father and not be conformed to the ways which lead to death but rather cast them to the side in pursuit of Christ because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We are not to fall into the former ignorance but as Peter charges in verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Central to understanding what holiness is in our pursuit of holiness is understanding the holiness of God. We can't talk about our pursuit of holiness if we do not establish God's holiness first. 
The main idea behind holiness is not just moral purity, but it's this idea of apartness. God is separate. He is different from his creation, both in his essential nature and the perfection of his attributes. When we fail to see God's apartness, we begin to believe that he's just a superman. He's just some kind of hero who, who, although on the outside, may look perfect, but even superheroes have flaws, don't they? No, God is holy other. His love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. His anger is a holy anger, and so on with all his attributes. He is separate from everyone and everything else. Why? Because he is creator. He is altogether and wholly other, both in his character and deeds. He is transcendently different from and greater than everything, all creatures in every conceivable respect. Holiness, then, is not just a reference to moral or ethical purity. This is certainly a part of it. There is no sin. There is no lies in God. But it also entails transcendent and unparalleled beauty. Holiness to God is transcendent and unparalleled beauty. So when Peter challenges us to be holy as God is holy, is this a charge for us to be utterly unique in, in the universe without rival or parallel? Sign me up. <laughs> no. This is not what Peter is calling us to. After all, God is not holy because of his actions or a set of behaviors It is not his behaviors that make him holy. No, he is the essence of holiness itself. We are not the essence of holiness itself, but rather because we have been adopted as sons and daughters, we have been invited to partake in pursuing holiness. And so we are not to strive and aspire to be transcendently beautiful or another class altogether. The key to understanding this charge to be holy is by comparing it to verses 14 and 15, that our pursuit of holiness is characterized by separating ourselves from the sinful passions that characterize our lives before we came to know Christ. Holiness means that we distance ourselves from the lifestyle that used to dominate our existence. Holiness means that we cut ourselves off from whatever will desensitize us to sin or blur our spiritual vision or stir up our sinful nature. Holiness is cutting it out. And this is the battle, brothers and sisters. A war we will fight until we pass from this life or until Christ returns. And that may seem like a bummer. But I find great words of encouragement, what Paul says in Philippians 3.12. The apostle writes this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's good news. What security we find in being known as Christ's people to be heirs with God, that even though I surely will stumble and fall, my righteousness is imputed to me. My righteousness is given to me by what Christ has done. I am his own. If you are a believer, you are his own. And that's good news. 
Second, I want us to see the motivation for godly living, the motivation. There's going to be a little bit of overlap from that first part to the second part, but there's a clear distinction of what motivates us here in the second part, I believe. So the motivation for godly living. Look with me again at verses 17 through 19. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The call to holiness in verses 13 through 16 this is where there's some overlap, is now repeated, but in slightly different terms, as Peter urges his readers to conduct themselves in a manner suitable to the relationship as God with God as Father. And this calling on the Father is more than simply to just name him as such. It is more than just saying, that man over there is my Father. To call on the to call on God as Father is to invoke or call upon his name specifically in prayer, a privilege given to those who are believers in Christ. My dad has always been a straight shooter with me, and I know many of you all, your fathers were probably straight shooters with you as well. I knew that if I called on his name, if I asked for assistance or advice, he would simply tell me as it is, and sometimes I didn't always like what he had to say. Peter says here that if we as believers in Christ who call God our Father, call upon him, remember God is one who shows no partiality. The God we serve is one who, because he is holy and we are not, will judge our conduct. If he is creator, if he is holiness itself, he has the authority and the right to do that. Thus, Peter tells us, that we are to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile, our time on earth. And scripture is clear that the standard of God's judgment is the works of each individual. But it's important to remember that Peter is not saying that our works are the grounds or the basis of our acceptance. Rather, they serve as an appropriate criteria for judgment insofar as they reflect and are a visible expression of one's inward faith commitment. Similarly, when we hire people for jobs, we don't just look at who they are as they sit before us, but we look at their social media accounts. We look at what their friends say about them so that we can get an accurate picture to look at appropriate criteria to make a judgment call. Therefore, in light of God's judgment, our responsibility as those who have entered into a relationship with God as Father is to conduct ourselves with fear during the course of our lives on earth. And praise be to God that this fear that Peter is talking about here is not a kind of fear in which we are to be afraid, in which we are to live in doubt or have anxiety about our relationship to God. No, this fear is about reverence. This fear is about awe and an ever-present sense of utter dependency on the Lord's power and mercy. As we have seen, even though we have the blessing of knowing Christ, we still fail in our works. And this is why I need the fear of the Lord in my life. So I am conscious of his all-pervasive presence in my absolute 
moment-by-moment dependency upon him for light and life. May we strive to do all that he has commanded, fearful of offending him and determined to obey him. We pursue holiness not as a means of earning salvation, but rather out of the redemption we've experienced in Christ. And to make this point clear, Peter calls us to remember that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by our forefathers. Peter here speaks of the sin nature that has been passed down from generation to generation. The nature in which, because of its incorruptibility, is not producing life, but death. The nature that in its pursuit of living for sin is futile, or as some translations say, is aimless. There seems to be an aim, finding life in sin, but it is in fact aimless because satisfaction cannot be found in temporary pleasure or in the things which build our gravestones. True satisfaction and life is found in the one who breaks our bondage to sin and death and propels us into new life. Paul in Romans 8.2 says this, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Dear friend, are you seeking to find life in what the world has to offer? Are you trying to find life in corruptible things? things that will perish. May I plead with you from experience, things that fade will never satisfy. Things that diminish, that break down, that do not last, will not give you the satisfaction you need. Our empty pursuits of finding life in sin will arrive at a certain result, but that result is not what you're looking for. That result is death. But praise be to God that although the wages of sin is death, God has offered a free gift to us in Christ to break our bondage to sin and death, to not live to the hostile ways anymore, but rather to have our affections raised to the beauty of Christ, his transcendent and unparalleled beauty. If today you are choosing to abandon the futile ways, the aimless ways of the flesh, and live for Christ and the free gift that he's offered in his son, Jesus. I would encourage you that as you leave these main doors, go to your left. There's a room on the right before you leave called the Crossroads. There's a pastor there who would love to talk with you, to pray with you, to come alongside of you. Because this is a battle, and one of the most beautiful things about being a part of the church family is it's a family. We have one common goal, one thing that unifies us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for that, we are all pursuing holiness. It's good to be reminded, brothers and sisters, that we were not ransomed, we were not adopted, we were not reconciled with silver and gold, but rather with something far more valuable, right? The blood of Christ. And this was God's plan all along, Scripture tells us. Jesus was not plan B in redemption, but rather he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, and he was made manifest in these last times for us. The entire plan of redemption is for those who believe in God, as John 3.16 tells us, will be saved. And as those who believe in God, we are not disappointed because our faith and hope has been substantiated by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. 
Romans 8, 11 tells us that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Praise be to God, holiness is not by my power, but it is by him who raised Christ from the dead that is living and working in me to respond in obedience. This is why I can't obey on my own accord. I need the realities of grace in my life. I need Christ's transforming power working in and through me to pursue holiness. I can't do this on my own because holiness is not my nature. I need Christ. We have life, brothers and sisters, because Jesus Christ has done the necessary work to connect us to God in faith. He was eternally foreknown, manifested in human form, sacrificed on the cross, raised from the dead, and given glory by the Father. And through all this, we come to have hope in God. And thus, Peter ends his se- this section precisely where he began. He exhorted us in verse 13 to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus appears. And then he concludes in verse 21 by reminding us that God has done everything necessary in and through Jesus to make it possible to put your faith and hope confidently in God alone. It's because of what God has accomplished through his son, Jesus, that I am given the motivation for godly living, to live in fear, reverential awe of the one who has brought me from death to life. Our last two points in our time together will go quickly, so I hope. We'll see. What time is it? All right, we're chugging along. Third, the necessity for love among the saved. The necessity for love among the saved. Look with me again at verses 22 through 25. Having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. And this is the word And this word is the good news that was preached to you. I've often heard it said that your vertical relationship determines the health of your horizontal relationships. This, of course, meaning that your relationship and intimacy with God, the Father, vertical, will determine your relationship with others, horizontal. It is no coincidence, then, that when God gives the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words to Moses, that the first four commandments have to do with man's relationship with God and the last six have to do with man's relationship with others. It is foundational that a relationship with God is established before we can have healthy relationships with others. We won't turn there, but it's Exodus 20. If you desire to look at those, maybe you have the Ten Commandments memorized and you're thinking through them. But this is foundational to the health of our relationships with others. And so it is no coincidence that in a dialogue about holiness, concerning holiness, that Peter does not omit words concerning our relationship with others. After all, holiness is a pursuit of the character of God as he is holy other. And if we end up mistreating others in our pursuit of God, then we've missed holiness entirely. We've missed the point. 
if we're trying to get to the character of God and we don't love, we're bankrupt. Holy living is incomplete if it's not accompanied by love. To be a Christian, to be one with Christ in repentance and declaration to Christ as Lord, it means that we are to pursue sincere brotherly love. And we may think, you know, we just need to suck it up and love people because after all, people can be difficult. But no. Peter calls us to a sincere brotherly love. Literally, an unhypocritical love. The kind of love that you just don't do it because you have to and then you go and you talk behind the person's back kind of love. The kind of love that means it. We may also think, well, Peter doesn't know the people I know. If he knew the people I'm talking about, he wouldn't call me to love them. May we, church family, not forget the love that we have been shown. 1 John 3.15 says this, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, that we also would lay down our lives for our brothers. We may forget and say, well, that's Christ laying down his life for me. I am much better than these people he's calling me to love. Hopefully you don't argue with scripture like this, but I'm playing devil's advocate here. But are we better? Let us not forget the us John is speaking of. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse 10, for while if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? The kind of love that God is calling us to is not a love in which we set the rules. Christ has set the standard for what love is by dying for sinful enemies, wicked, ungodly people. May we not forget the grace and love for which God has shown us for that impacts the grace and love that we show others. If we become ignorant of God's sacrifice, we become ignorant, think we're too good for the gospel, oh, we put ourselves in a mess of trouble to believe that we are superior than others, to believe that we have arrived at some sort of perfection above others. No, brothers and sisters, we are pressing on to achieve the same prize. We have been called to love. But this kind of love is not a cakewalk, right? Right? This is one that requires us to exercise it earnestly or fervently. And this is the rightest response of those who have been born again through the living and abiding word, God's word. When Christ comes into our lives, our affections have been changed, as we've already talked about. God's word has been written on our hearts. No longer do we seek our own way, but we seek to do the will of the Father. No longer do we strive after the perishable seed, the corruptible things, the aimless ways of our forefathers, which amount to nothing, but rather we pursue an imperishable seed, the living and abiding word of God. And God's word certainly endures, does it not? 
It has survived centuries of manual transcription, of ever-changing philosophies, all kinds of critics, neglect both in the pew and in the pulpit of doubt and disbelief, and still the word of the Lord endures forever. One theologian has said this concerning the enduring nature of the word. A thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, the committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. As believers, since this eternal, always potentially fruit-bearing seed is in us, has been written on our hearts, we have both the obligation and the ability to have sincere brotherly love. Because this word is one that endures forever, I've not only been called to do so, but I have been empowered with the ability to do so. Perhaps we could say that if we need more love towards others, it begins with having more of the imperishable seed set in your hearts and allowed to grow. Which leads me to my fourth and final point, which also will serve as a point of application for us. Nourished by the word. Nourished by the word. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 2, 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation, grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter continues in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 with an unbroken train of thought by summing up all the essential elements to a life of holiness. He lists here five attitudes and actions undeniably inconsistent with a life devoted to the, sense, to the sort of brotherly love and the pursuit of holiness in which he is called believers. If we are to pursue holiness, we must put away sinful habits and rather take hold of God's word. As Paul says in Colossians 3, that because we have set our minds on Christ, we are to put to death the things of old and put on the things of Christ. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 119, 9 through 11. He asks, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And Paul encourages Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from your childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped to do every good work. To cling to God's word is the appropriate response of those who, having been born again, are God's newborn infants. Peter here is not insulting us. It's not a pejorative insult by calling us babies. But rather, he's talking about the intimacy, our need for God's word. He's talking about the intimacy of our relationship with God as 
Father. Paul does something similar in Romans 8.15 in which he says this, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You have been entered into this relationship an intimacy that you were not born into, but one that you have received through the gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. To whereas before you were enemies, but now you can approach God and name him Father. You can call him Dad. Because this is an intimacy we did not have before, but by the grace of God, we now do. For those who've responded in faith. And since he is our Father, and we are his adopted sons and daughters, we would not be put to shame. We, out of obedience to what Christ has accomplished for us, shall pursue holiness. Because God's word is written on our hearts. We have both the obligation and the ability to do so. May we, as believers, devote ourselves to the task of putting off sinful passions and devote ourselves to God's word because we have indeed tasted the good news of the gospel. God has provided everything we need to know him, to be known by him, and to pursue holiness. Let us together focus our minds on the author and perfecter of our faith. He provides an example for us. And let us come together as a church family to support each other in doing away with the sin which holds us in bondage and pursue Christ so that all may see the good news and the work of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for this opportunity we have to open the word together. What a privilege it is, not only to have your word written on our hearts, God, but also to have it here before us to know you, to know the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, who is manifested for us, who is foreknown. God, Jesus was not the plan B in redemption, but God, he was the plan all along to redeem sinful man from their sin. And so, Lord, we ask that by your spirit, if there is anyone in this room who is living for the aimless ways of the flesh, that by your spirit, you would convict them of, your, of their sin. Draw them to yourself so that they may have true life. And Father, for those of us who are believers in this room, would you, as you already are day by day, continue to sustain us by your power so that we can pursue holiness together. Lord, we thank you. It's in your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.